I've asked my friend Dennis to come and read to us James chapter 2, beginning with verses 1 through to 9. Thanks, Dennis. That's right. Still there, God? Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> okay. Loving Heavenly Father, Lord God, we enter your gates today with thanksgiving and your courts mm-hmm. with praise. We consider it a privilege and a pleasure to be here today, Lord in your presence. Mm. Father, I just pray you bless this word to the hearts of all here and beyond. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Family, uh, could I ask you all to stand while I read the word of life? James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes, If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, my dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love him. But you dishonor the poor. Isn't the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin you are guilty of breaking the law. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, Dean. I had a good friend of mine a couple of weeks ago came to see you and he said, Russell, how come you get people to stand from the, for the reading of the word? Are you, are you a Presbyterian or something in your background? And I've always done it, friends. I haven't copied from anyone. I haven't um, seen it done in another church. I just, in my heart, when someone reads the word of God and it's a reasonable section of scripture, I just feel like standing and closing my eyes and often bowing my head because it's the word of God and it's truth. Culture changes. Man's ideas come and go. The word of God, it stands forever. Hey, in the Bible, friends, there are two types of rich people. 
There's a sort of rich person talked about in Proverbs that works hard, that studies well, that saves their money, and God honours those rich people. Boy, he speaks of them well. And he speaks of the lazy person very harshly. But there's also a second type of rich person in the Bible that runs over people to get to the front, that exploits people to make a buck. And it's those people that James is referring to here. So when you hear this passage read, don't think God's anti-rich people. No, rich people are hard-working, disciplined people usually. But there are some, and there were certainly some in James's day, they didn't get rich by working hard and saving dollars and being wise. They got rich by exploiting people, by underpaying people, and it used to get James really upset. You and I are living in an age of tolerance. One of the biggest words you're going to hear when you mix with the community is tolerance, tolerance. It's so important. It's all about tolerance. And one of the reasons New Zealand struggled with one-way Jesus is because it sounds like we're being intolerant to everybody else. So when we say, let's be tolerant, let's treat everybody equally that comes in the door, culturally we think it's so much part of our mindset, we must be doing it. But are we doing it really? I, I pose a scenario to myself during the week. I imagine Bill Gates coming to church or to, to a meeting with me for half an hour next week. And, and Bill Gates is one of the five richest people in the world. He can make things happen with just a word. And I imagine Bill Gates coming to meet with me, say, on Tuesday morning and maybe Wednesday morning, I meet with a homeless person that's been homeless and unemployed and on the sickness benefit for 20 years. Here's the question I ask myself in this age of tolerance when we treat people equally. I know if I'm going to meet with Bill Gates for half an hour, I'm going to brush my teeth, I'm going to brush my hair, check I haven't left any stubble on my face, I'm going to look for a nice place to have a coffee, I'm probably going to write discussion notes down on a card, a bit of paper. I'm going to prepare really well to meet with Bill Gates. What about the homeless guy? The homeless guy, meeting him the next day for half an hour, am I going to prepare as well and be so attentive to his needs or her needs and show respect to them in the same way as I would Bill Gates? I think so, but I'm not so sure. I think there's something within our hearts that gravitates toward bias. And if somebody rich comes to church, sometimes they get treated a bit differently because they might be great tithers one day. We form friendships with people that might aid us in our ministry in some way. But James would say, and remember James is a guy that was a little bit biased toward his own people. He loved the Jewish people who had become Christian. He loved his own culture. And James would say, boy, if someone comes to your church, the church on the middle of the Whangarei, and one is rich and one is poor, one is famous and one is not known, one is a sporting star, one comes in on a Zimmer frame, they should be treated the same. They should get the same love, the same attention, the same respect. doesn't matter if they struggle with English. doesn't matter what their breath is like. It doesn't matter how intelligently they seem to speak. In God's kingdom, he wants us to treat everybody as equals. Respect and honour everyone. Now I think about what does honour look like? I suspect some examples of honour in the church might be when people arrive in the car park and some senior person is struggling to get out of their car. Maybe honour looks like rushing to get the door and giving them a hand. Maybe after church when we're lining up for a tea or a coffee, Maybe honour looks like taking the seniors or people who have a little bit of a few mobility issues to a seated area at the back and saying, 
can I get the coffee for you? You know, maybe honour and respect means that when a little child says something to you in church, it doesn't matter that they're five or six or seven. You listen with the same attentiveness and love and respect as you would to someone, you know, uh, who's known for being more influential in the community. I believe that God wants to build a culture of honour in the church, that God is going to send people to this church and we're to treat them the same. Bill Gates comes, should get the same treatment as a homeless person of 20 or 30 years. They should get the same treatment because this is the kingdom of God. This is part of the kingdom of God. I've often come across people and we talk about evangelism and I love seeing lost people saved. I love seeing them saved in a way where they stay in the kingdom, they stay with Jesus till they go to heaven. And often people say to me, Russell, when you're evangelised, isn't it wisest to, to look for the captain of the rugby team, to look for the most influential person, politician or someone in town, because surely if you win the captain of the rugby team or the, the sporting star or the business person who's super successful, surely they'll influence hundreds more and that would be a great strategy, wouldn't it? And this is what I found as a Christian. I found... The people open to the gospel, the people who listen to me and respect what I have to say about Jesus are humble people. And they might be rich, successful people, and they may not be. And so what their social status is or what their influence is, I might spend all my time trying to win the captain of the rugby team when there's 10 people in my immediate circle who are humble and teachable and they're open and they're saying, you know, life isn't working. I wish there were some answers. I'm better to focus on the humble person than the most significant person socially around me if I want to see the kingdom of God come and life's changed. One of the things that we'll face as time goes on is as God adds people to the family and we'll be more and more a family as a church, keeping the back rows free for the unchurched. Um, seeing people after church and not rushing to our friends or our relatives but rushing to the person who looks like they're sitting on their own who looks like they're isolated they're cultural changes friends it's part of honouring it's part of respecting respect people of all ages and stages and honour them wherever you can then it says don't compare yourself to others verse 10 for the person who keeps all the laws except one is guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but uh, do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. There'll be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Now, James is writing to Christians who are being persecuted. Man, these guys, they're going through trouble like you and I wouldn't believe. They've been hounded around the known world. They're scattered throughout the known world. And it could be that if you're being persecuted, if you haven't got a job, if you're struggling and a rich person comes to church, it could be you're tempted to think, heck, maybe they'll get me a job. Heck, maybe they'll help me out. And James is saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Treat everybody the same. It might be that someone comes in your circle of friends and you think, wow, if I could win this person to Jesus, that would be such a trophy. 
you know, trophy of grace, trophy on my arm of my success in my ministry. And James would say, don't go there, don't do it. Don't connect with people for your benefit. Treat all people the same and don't compare yourself to others. It's easy for us to look at someone and say, you know what, uh, they're wrestling with this sin and that sin and this sin and I haven't done those three things. But you are, you're in need as much grace as anybody else. I remember kneeling with an elder one day, years and years ago, and we were going to go and visit a man, a significant man in the community who was a Christian and had just started living with a young lady. And I knelt beside this elder and we prayed for this man before we went. And the elder said to me, Russell, it's just amazing that God's kept us by his grace. We all struggle with things and we could have fallen the same way, but we haven't. And when we went to see this man, he went with such humility that this man quickly repented and put his life right with Jesus again. We're all forgiven. From God's perspective, we all need so much grace. Don't compare yourselves to others. Now, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible about what we think is about giving, I don't think is about giving at all. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. You'll be able to quote this most of you. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into, the, into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you give back. Verses 36 and 37 in James 2. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Don't judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, and it will all come back uh, against you. Forgive others, and you'll be forgiven. Given you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Sorry, that was in, in, in Luke. We look at the scripture and we think it's all about giving. Give and you'll get back, pressed down, running over. When you read the first two verses in context, it's actually all about grace and mercy. Boy, if you just extravagantly love on people, if you just show kindness to people, irrespective of what they're going to do back to you, if you just pour out forgiveness and mercy and grace, you're going to get it back, pressed down, shaken together and running over. That's what he was really talking about. So what Jesus said in Luke 6 is the same as what James says, old Camelies, in James chapter 2. Treat everybody equally. Don't give any preferential treatment to anyone or compare yourself morally to anyone. Just be champions of mercy and of grace. Dennis, would you read us your second passage of Scripture? Once again, I think I'm on way up online. Thank you. Thank you for standing, brothers and sisters. Carrying on, James chapter 2, verses 14 through to 26. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, 
goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then <clears throat> you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestors Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened. Just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. We'll Please be seated. Thank, Thank you. you. Great. James chapter 2 has been at the centre of lots of controversies down through history. Um, Martin Luther, who was famous for what, friends? Faith and faith alone, wasn't he? When Martin Luther came to, during the Reformation to the book of James, this is what he said. He said, it's a straw epistle. It should be ripped out and thrown in the river Rhine. That's what he said. Because he was pushing faith by faith on its own. Just have a personal faith. That's all you need. And he's right, it's all about faith. And yet he came to James and he said, gosh, this guy James, Jesus' half-brother, sounds like he's saying it's about works and you're judged by your works and faith without works is dead. And Martin Luther didn't like it at all. But I think Martin Luther misunderstood what James was saying. I don't think there's a contradiction between what James is saying here, faith without works is dead, or salvation through faith and faith alone. And we'll see that in just a minute. There appears to be a contradiction. And when that happens in Scripture, we just need to keep digging because it won't be a contradiction at all. James, just like the Apostle Paul says, if you want to see how people are saved, look at Abraham. When Abraham put his son Isaac up on the altar, can you, to me this is the most horrific story in the Old Testament, to be honest. Uh, God says to Abraham, Abraham, you know, I want you to put your son up on the altar on Mount Moriah. And I want you to plunge a knife through his chest and sacrifice him to me. But before that happened, God says there's a ram stuck in a thicket. I'll sacrifice the ram instead. But Abraham heard God. He believed God. He was going to obey God. I mean, absolutely terrifying. What went through Abraham's head? I've got no idea. He's probably thinking, well, God could resurrect him. 
He's probably thinking something might happen. I don't know, but that would be the most terrifying thing for a dad to even consider. But he goes to obey God. And Abraham is seen as a man of faith because he obeyed God. When did he first obey God? In uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis 15, verse 6. It talks about the time when God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you so many descendants. They're going to be more than the grains of sand on the seashore. And Abraham effectively goes, awesome, I believe that too, Mickey. Oh, yay. You know, he just takes God's word, he believes it. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So James is quoting Abraham a man who lived out his faith, who showed his faith by obedience, by actions, and it's not a contradiction to Paul who said it's all about faith. Uh, Martin Luther uh, was unnecessarily stressed out. They agree with each other. I have no idea what was going on in Mount Moriah except for this one thing, and most of you will know it. Where did God have his son sacrificed? Same mountain, Mount Moriah. So a couple of thousand years later, a God puts his son up and he's not spared. He dies on the cross. He dies in that very place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And maybe God allowed Abraham to go through that horrendous experience because it was a foretaste. It was a, a looking forward to prophetically to what he was about to do himself. How did Abraham get saved? He believed God and at that moment in time he was saved. How did we know that Abraham was saved? We know he was saved because he's willing to step out in faith and do stuff. If people say to you, look, I've got a personal faith in Jesus, that's good and that's biblical. But if personal faith means no one else knows, that doesn't make any sense at all. Someone says, I believe in Jesus, I've got my own walk with God, and there's no evidence in their life that other people can see that they've got faith, something is seriously wrong. And the Apostle James would get in the face of someone like that and say, sharpen up. Unless you're living differently, unless you're showing compassion to the poor and the needy, it's not real faith. Abraham proved that he had faith by his willingness to obey. In other words, by his works, Abraham proved the reality of his faith. And so it's not faith and works that saves a person. It's not faith or works, but rather it's faith that works. That's the key. Now, Mount Moriah there, Abraham was doing something prophetic. It would point to what God would do for each one of us. I don't know how much this church is going to grow this year, friends. It will grow. And it won't grow by us pushing things or manipulating things or trying to make things happen or grow something like this. We're going to love in our community. And we're going to love in practical ways and with words about Jesus. And we're going to be praying for the city. And we're going to be looking after each other better and better and better as a family. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit's going to say to broken people, to needy people, to lonely people, some of them rich, some of them poor, you go to Church Unlimited in Whangarei because my kids will look after you. My kids will bring healing. My kids will bring security. They'll show you respect. You'll feel loved and accepted in that place. And he will start to add to the church and add to the church. And we need to embrace those people with a culture of honour a culture of respect. It doesn't matter rich or poor, famous or seemingly insignificant, not to God though. They need to be loved when they come and they are going to come. And our eyes need to be open and our culture needs to be one of looking to take care, to serve on other people, to love on other people as God sends them to us. I want us to become champions, friends, of grace 
and of kindness. As the year progresses, we'll do more and more for the community and for each other. And the Holy Spirit will do what he wants to do in our midst. We're not trying to earn credits. We're not trying to earn salvations. It's interesting people say, do numbers matter in church? If the numbers represent someone we're loving in the name of Jesus, yes, they matter. If that number represents relationships and discipleship, yes, they matter. It matters that every person is treated as special when they come to this fellowship. We believe his word and we obey his promptings. And so when people look at us, they won't be asking, are these guys in the faith all works? No, they're looking at you through the way you live on Sundays, through the way you live during the week. And they're going to say, look at the way that Christian loves others. That's real. And that's faith. That works. I'm going to ask you to stand, friends. I'll invite Isaac and the team to come back to the front again. As they come forward, I want to pray for you and I to have eyes to see and a heart to respond to every person equally. As they come forward, I want to pray that God prepares us for what he's going to do in the life of this church. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we don't need to wonder about what to do and who to reach. You'll show us, God. You'll show us. You'll open doors. You'll send resources. It'll be your timing and your way. And it might be different to anything we've ever done before. But God, as a church, we say we're open. And we just pray for each other, Lord. We pray for ourselves that as you send people, as you connect us with people outside these doors and within these walls, that there'll be such a sense of love and respect and honour in us that people will look at the way we treat them and very quickly know that you're real and open their hearts to you. Father, we pray that you grow, Church Unlimited Whangarei, your way, your time this year, and that every person you send us, God, that we would look after them with the respect and honour and integrity that you call us to. May people find healing in this family. May people find connection in this family. May people find purpose in this family. May people find Jesus through this family. In Jesus' name, amen.